Amen. I'm Pastor Jeff, one of the uh, pastors here at FBC, and uh, we're going to read in Psalm 102, verse 12 through 17. But you, O Lord, are enthroned above forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will rise and have pity on Zion. It is the time of favor for her. The appointed time has come for your servants to hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of his um, destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. And just even in this reading, Father, your glory is so wonderful. God, we just give you praise that uh, even with your people then and now, Father, you have pity, that you care for us, that you love us, and are so into us. May we just enjoy you and connect with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please. Yeah, you can have a seat. Not that you're going to wait for my permission, apparently. <laughs> uh, you may or may not know, but we have a whole group of folks over at uh, the coast this weekend for the campout over at Harris Beach uh, State Park and other places. Uh, some uh, didn't camp uh, and got other accommodations. And uh, so we had church uh, last night there at the coast in the campground. And, uh, and so we get to do it this morning as well. So I uh, wanted you to know that many of our uh, our folks are enjoying the coast. And the weather was really good, which is strange because we were at uh, the Oregon coast. And so it was weird for it to be sunny and not rainy or fogged in or whatever, whatever else tends to happen. So anyway, everybody seemed to have fun. Uh, I don't think anybody got injured. Uh, somebody asked how the volleyball tournament went. Uh, apparently that was a highlight for some. Uh, it went terrible because my team lost. And... Um, well, I hate losing. Um, I, don't know, I don't know how to say that nice. I don't like losing. Uh, so obviously the other team cheated. Um, <laughs> Seth lost a kite. Uh, he was flying a kite, which you ought to do on the Oregon coast, and, uh, and apparently he lost it. So that was a tragedy. So pray for him and his family as they go through this difficult time. Um, I don't have any other um, highlights from the coast. You can ask people who went over there. Psalm 102, title of the message is Garden Prayer. And by the time we get to the end of the message, hopefully you understand why I've titled this Garden Prayer. It's a prayer of both sadness and victory. It is a prayer of sadness as well as victory. But I want to start with some philosophical questions. And I know that's very, very exciting. But here we go, philosophical questions. Say, for example... You go and see your doctor, and your doctor gives you a shot. Have you ever gotten a shot at the doctor? I don't like getting shots. I mean, I get them. I don't mind them, but I don't like getting them. Uh, it hurts, um, and uh, you also have to pay for them, both. <laughs> Two things are happening at the same time that are really annoying. Um, something's costing me money, and, it, and I'm paying somebody to hurt me. That makes no sense. So I want you to think about it this way. You go to the doctor and he does something to you that hurts. Have you ever left, left the doctor after he's given you a shot or she's given you a shot and said, you know, how can, how can, I mean, I am serious. 
how can this alleged physician both be a doctor that causes pain and also be good? It can't be. This certain person certainly is not qualified to treat others because this person is causing pain. Have you ever had this? Have you, now, you may not like your doctor, certainly if they're causing pain or if they have a bedside manner, but it's very, very strange when somebody causes pain that you know is necessary for you to walk out. Well, I question their goodness. Now, you might say that if somebody has harmed you. You might say that if somebody has caused you harm intentionally, somebody assaults you and punches you in the face or wrecks your car, something like this. You, I don't know if this person is good. But how often have you left, left the doctor's office? Now, sometimes you have. You leave the doctor's office. This is not a good doctor. I need a new doctor. But you don't inherently question their goodness just because a shot hurt, do you? Some people do. Then try this on for size. Have you ever questioned your doctor's existence because they do something hurtful? You know what? I don't believe a doctor would cause pain, and so therefore, I don't believe he exists. And he responds, I'm standing right here. <laughs> I mean, have we ever done this? Now, maybe you've picked up where I'm going. We do this with God all the time. God does something that we don't like because why? Why does God do things we don't like? He's God. You are not. The rest of us are grateful that he is God and you are not. So he is, if he did everything you wanted, who's God? You are. He's not. So he is God. So on occasion, he's going to do things you don't like. And so we do funny things. We say, well, I don't think he's good because he doesn't do everything the way I want it. Or we do an even crazier thing philosophically. Well, since he doesn't do everything I want, I'm just going to act like he doesn't exist. We don't do this in any other area of our life. Well, since this God is not acting consistent with my personal opinion of how God should behave, he must not exist. Now, why do I bring this up? The reason I bring this up is the people during the time when the Psalms were written would never do something so silly. God exists. The psalmist is trying to figure out how we can live with God. It's not a question of whether or not he exists or whether or not he's good. These things are a given. He knows God exists. And every human, actually, I would suggest, knows that God exists. And the psalmist is willing in the, in the difficulties of life, the troubles of life, the things not going the way they ought to be going of life, to wrestle with what he understands about God and what's going on in the realities of his life. And he's well served for this. And so what we're going to do is look at what does it look like in the realities of life to, to struggle with both who God is and what we see going on in our life. So the first uh, portion we're going to look at, verses 1 through 11, is sort of the complaint or the, the voicing of the things that are going wrong in the psalmist's life. Psalm 102, verses 1 through 11, let me read it. Sadness in suffering. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. 
I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Verse 8. All the, day, all the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. This is a, a prayer of one who is having great sadness in their suffering. Let me just point out to you just briefly the similarities we see of this of Christ in Luke 22 verses 39 through 46 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. This is verse 40 of Luke 22. When he came to the place he said to them pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, and he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. So here's Jesus in the sadness of suffering. And his suffering is caused by the hand of the Father on him. His suffering is caused by the hand of the Father on him. Now Jesus is enter in, entering into suffering voluntarily. That's what he says, not my will but yours be done. So Jesus is voluntarily engaging with the Father in this great plan of redemption, but the cause of his suffering is what? The Father. It is coming from God, his Father. But he is not questioning God's existence. Does he say, well, since this is happening, my Father doesn't exist. Does he say that? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. And he doesn't say, well, since this is happening, God must not be good. Well, of course he doesn't say that because Jesus knows the plan of redemption is good. However, he knew that the plan of redemption took its path through suffering. Nonetheless, he is honest with God about the degree of his suffering. How intense is his suffering? He's sweating blood. That's pretty intense. He is, his suffering is so intense that an angel showed up to strengthen him. That's how tough his, his suffering was. Imagine that. The Son of God incarnate, God in the flesh, is suffering so intensely that an angel is dispatched to give him a hand for a few minutes. And, and what does that do? Not much. Look at verse 44. This is Luke 22 still. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I love that. Because I thought it was only me that prayed really well when things were going really bad. But Jesus, like he was praying, and then... In his agony, he prayed even more earnestly. He was moved to press into the Lord, and he was under great suffering. This is what we learn from Christ, and we'll look at verse by verse in, in Psalm 102. We can call out to God in our suffering, and we can be honest about our pain. We can be honest about our loss. We can be honest about our frustration. We can be honest about the suffering we're experiencing in this world. And we can be honest about all of those things to God because everything that we're experiencing is 
from God. Because God knows what's best, and he is good, and he is powerful, and there is no comfort in pretending that God is not involved. There is great comfort in being willing to say, this is from God, I know he is, and I know he is my father. I don't like what I'm doing, and I I really wish we weren't doing what we're doing, God, but I trust you're in it. So let's look at uh, verse by verse in Psalm 102, and you said, I thought we already started doing that. Here we go. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. He is praying that God would hear and respond him in the day of his great suffering. In fact, he is praying that God would respond in a particular way. I love this. Incline your ear to me. This is the end of verse 2. Answer me speedily. Have you ever prayed that way with God? Lord, here's what I need to have happen. And by 10 would be great. And you feel like maybe you're not supposed to pray that way. No, I must be patient and be like a cherub. And no, I love the psalmist. No, God, here's what I need. And you know when I need it? Yesterday. Right now. Let's go. Chop, chop. Let's get it going. I'm, I'm suffering, God, and I want it to stop. This is just honesty with God about what the, the, the psalmist wants. It doesn't mean he's demanding of God. He's still yielding his prayer to the purposes of God. But he's saying, I, God, I want you to respond. Here's the, the most important part of these first two verses is verse, the first line of, of verse 2. Do not hide your face from me. See, what the psalmist is wrestling with is not doubt. Like, he's not wondering, does God exist? He's not wondering, is God good? He's wondering, is everything okay between God and I? Are God and I okay? And so this prayer is, God... Whatever may be going on, I cannot be in a place where you're separated from me. I need to know you are close. I need to know there's a relational connection between you and I. God, do you care in this moment? God, are you present in this moment? And even more so, in this moment, God, are you on my side? Are you on my team or are you on the other team? So his, his struggle with the Lord here is a relational struggle. He's is God, is, is God ashamed of me? That's what it means to hide your face. That's what you do when somebody does something that, that's embarrassing. You, you, have you ever done that? When somebody does something embarrassing, you kind of cover your eyes. And that's what he imagines God is doing. Is that God is, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Oh, my goodness. And the psalmist said, that can't be, that can't be what's happening. Whatever may happen in my life, whatever suffering I'm going through, I must know that God is not hiding his face from me. He shows us in verses 3 and 4, maybe some of what's going on. He's got a lot of things going on, but in verses 3 and 4, he says, His days pass away like smoke. His bones burn like a furnace. His heart is struck down. It may very well be that the psalmist here, the poet here, is suffering some, from some physical difficulty. Suffering from some disease, some, uh, some, something going on with his body that is causing pain. We're going to read later in verse 5, his bones cling to his flesh. So it appears maybe he's not even eating like he should be. Or disease of some kind is, is wasting him away. And so he's, he's experiencing physical limitations because of what's going on in, in his life. So he's recognizing because of his physical limitations how brief life is. He says, I forget to eat my bread. It could be he's lost his appetite, or like many of us, when we're in times of great 
anxiety. All of a sudden, we don't feel like eating. You ever been in that spot where you're worried about something so much? You just, nothing sounds, nothing sounds good. And he recognizes how brief his life is. And he's, in a sense, echoing Jacob. When Jacob stood before Pharaoh, uh, Jacob, the Pharaoh asked Jacob, you know, how old are you? And the reason he asked him that, because he was really old. He said, how old are you? And he said, my years have been few and difficult. That was the summary of Jacob's life. My years have been few, and the few years I've had have been difficult. That was the summation of his life. And, and this is the psalmist here recognizing the brevity of his life. And he has pain that may be physical pain. He may have pain that is heartache. And he is saying, what is the point of even having dinner? There's nothing in this life to be enjoyed because of the suffering I'm under. That's the experience of the psalmist here. It gets worse. Yeah, I know. You're welcome. Here we go. Verses 5, 6, and 7. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. Verses, verse 6 and 7. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. You ever seen an owl in the wilderness? Not very often. I mean, but you might. I mean, I've seen some owls. Of course you've seen them. We got owls here. Why don't you see owls very often? They're solitary creatures. They don't like to be bothered. Verse 7, I lay awake. I am, here it is, I am lonely like a sparrow on a housetop. And this is the universal, the universal experience of suffering is in some, to some degree, there's a sense of isolation. To some degree, there's a, a sense of isolation. And the reason is, this doesn't mean this person is not around people. Listen, isolation when you're by yourself is one thing. But what he's describing here is loneliness in a crowded room. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're in a room and there's lots of people and maybe people are even talking to you, but you're saying, nobody understands, nobody gets it. Maybe even share a little bit of your experience and, and you can just tell it's really, really difficult in human relationship to communicate what you're going, what's going on in your life. Or you might be the kind of person like many of us where you don't, you don't want to share the details of your life. You're going to you're going to have those things remain yours. And so you don't even, you don't tell anybody what's going on. And, and it increases that sense of isolation. And what the psalmist is experiencing there is the same thing experiences uh, we experience, which is you, you go to the people of God, because remember the psalmist is living within the people of God, and you feel isolated. So say you come to church on a Sunday morning and you feel isolated, which happens, right? Which happens. You're in a room full of people, and nobody sees you. And that's, that's not good. We, we don't come here to be, feel isolated. But what's worse about that is how we experience relationship with others within the people of God tends to push itself into how we're experiencing our relationship with God. And that's what, so these two things are happening. He's saying, I'm, I'm isolated. I'm totally by myself. And I don't, I don't know if God's with me. I don't know if God's people are with me. And this suffering has, has put me into a corner where I feel totally alone. And this is the sadness he's experienced, this isolation. It gets what? It gets worse. Keep going. Verse 8. More religious people. All day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. So now his name has been turned into a cuss word. 
May what happened to Jason happen to you. Sorry, Jason. You got to find a new spot to sit. That's what you. So all of a sudden, this guy becomes a curse. Or you can see parents as the kids walk by this poor suffering saint. They're going to get their kids and put them on the other side. You ever done that with your kid? You separate. Oh, now look, if you don't go to school and keep your grades up, you're going to be like you're going to be like Jason. Sorry. And the kids are like, oh, okay, I don't want to be like Jason. I don't know. That, that's what's happened to this guy. And it's worse yet. What has happened is people see suffering. And this is very, very common during Bible times. If somebody is suffering, we assume what? They've been naughty. They've done something wrong. They've done something wrong and God is smiting them. God is getting them upside the head. And so therefore, they need to come correct. They need to get their life figured out. They need to... Stop doing whatever's wrong so God will like them so they won't suffer anymore. So not only are they isolated, they are judged. That's what he says. Verses 8, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread. Mourners sit in ashes. And I mingle tears with my drink. Others see the suffering he is experiencing and they... Uh, put onto him the burden of saying, we reject you because God has rejected you. And that's the suffering this, this psalmist is experiencing. Verses 10 and 11, he goes right at God. Because of your indignation and anger, you have taken me up and thrown me down. You have taken me up and thrown me down. We've all done this as dads. Maybe you've picked up your little toddler and thrown them up in the air and caught them, right? Well, what the psalmist is saying is God threw him up in the air and walked away. So he's saying, God threw me up in the air and let, it, let me just fall to the ground. And he's not blaming God here. He's not being sacrilegious. What he is saying is he is communicating to God his experience of what's going on. This is what it feels like. God, it feels like you threw me up in the air and let me crash. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And you might say this is, nobody should pray a prayer like this to God. Why would somebody pray a prayer like this to God that would blame God for the suffering that he's experiencing? Why would anybody who cares at all about God pray this way? And it's this reason. It's someone who trusts God, believes God is in even the suffering. The psalmist believes God. The psalmist trusts God. It doesn't mean he has to be polite, though. He said, no, I know what's going on. God, I know you are in this. Now, for us, and it's always going to be a struggle, it's difficult to square the goodness of God with the difficulty we face in our life. And the psalmist has that difficulty, too, but he is going to trust God, and he's going to be honest with the situation. What's going on in my life is from the Lord. To trust God, if you're going to trust God is in charge and in control, then you have to believe that even during the difficult times, God is in it. That God is involved. He's engaged. Sadness and suffering. I don't want to leave us there because uh, that's kind of depressing. So let's get going. Let's look at the rest of the psalm because in this garden prayer, we have sadness and suffering. But the result is because of the power of God is joy in restoration. So while there is sadness and suffering, God gives us hope because as we're going to see in our Savior Jesus, on the other side of suffering is the glory of restoration in the Lord. 
On the other side of suffering is the glory of restoration in the Lord. Verses 12 through 28. Jeff, now, Jeff read uh, some of these verses, which uh, I appreciate. Uh, he read verses 12 through 17. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. So this is the acknowledgement of the psalmist that God is in charge and something is coming, the glory of restoration. Now we have to mention a guy in the Bible. His name is Job. You ever heard of Job? You should read the book of Job, but it's very long and it's mostly whining. So it gets a little tedious, but it's a fantastic book. Job 1 and 2 starts out with God bringing suffering into Job's life. And it's really, really interesting how it happens. God is in heaven, and Satan comes up from walking around. Who knows what he's doing? God says, what have you been doing? He's like, yeah, I've been walking around. And God says about Job, what does God say about Job? Have you noticed my servant Job? He's a good guy. Worships me. And Satan then says to God, what? Of course he worships you. You bought him off. Of course he worships you. You bought him off. So Satan does what Satan does. He's an accuser. He accuses Job of only worshiping God because God gave him money. And he accuses God of buying his worshipers. That's what he accuses. That's what Satan does. And God says, fine, go ahead, do your thing. So Satan goes and he uh, wipes out his camels and wipes out his donkeys and wipes out his sheep, wipes out his kids. He wipes out everything. The, the ways in which he gets wiped out, there are raiding bands, there's a tornado or a hurricane, but this one's a big one. There is also fire from heaven that comes down. And so what we have happening is God has empowered Satan to bring suffering into Job's life. So if God has given Satan authority to bring suffering to Job's life, who brought suffering into Job's life? God did. Because Satan can't do anything unless God gives permission. And so then Job goes through lots and lots of suffering. It was very, very bad. You can read it in the middle of Job. And Job complains about God. What did I ever do to you? What did I ever do to you? It's kind of like Psalm 102, except for 38 chapters. You're welcome. We're not doing that today. Where does it end up, though? So Job 42, verses 10 through 17. Here's what happens. Job 42, God says this to Job's friends. If I can find it here. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Listen, what has Job been doing for the previous 38 chapters? He'd been whining. But what did God say? At least he was being honest. Job was being honest. You guys were being religious morons, and I'm being polite. Because what they were doing is trying to convince Job the reason God, got, God did this to him is because he wasn't good enough. And God said, that's not what was going on here. So, God says to uh, these friends, my anger burns against you. Now, therefore, take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to who? My servant Job... And offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept his prayer. Not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right. As my servant Job has. So fantastic. They spend 38 chapters telling Job he's terrible. And at the end of the book God says. I'll forgive you if Job does. 
if I were them, I'd be shaking in my boots a little bit. But they did it. They went to Job and did what the Lord said. And this is what the Bible says. The Lord accepted Job's prayer. So he's been suffering and suffering, suffering at the hand of God. But now there is joy in restoration. Who is restored? Is Job restored? Not yet. Who's restored? The, the three friends are restored. So what was the result of Job's suffering at this point? We haven't read verse 10 yet. What's the result of Job's suffering? Three friends who had a terrible relationship with God have experienced restoration in their relationship with God. That's one of the things that Job's suffering brought. But there is joy in restoration. Verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. Lots of kids, lots of camels, lots of donkeys. That's all, everything dreams of. All the middle school kids are dreaming of lots of donkeys. That's what they did back then. So Job suffered and Job prayed for his repentant friends and they experienced restoration. So we can say this and we can look throughout the Bible. This is true. The path to restoration of relationship with God is through suffering and repentance. The path to restoration with God is through suffering and repentance. And so joy is found for us as believers now that we live after the cross when we see that God himself, Jesus Christ, is the one who entered into suffering for us. So Jesus enters into suffering for us. He does so that we can have restored relationship with God. The garden prayer brings us joy in restoration. Look at verses 12 through 17 of Psalm 102. Jeff read it already. Verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. That, that, them saying, God, you will honor your promises to keep your people. It is time to favor her, the psalmist say, it says, the appointed time has come. Your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. So the people of Israel held the land of Israel, the promised land, close because that is the place of God's promises. God had promised them that his covenant would be fulfilled in them in the promised land. And they were restored to the promised land out of Egypt. And they were restored to the promised land out of Babylon. Verse 16. The Lord builds up Zion. The, he regards the prayer of the destitute and doesn't despise their prayer. So this is a prayer of faith for the suffering. That God's promises to his people are certain. That God's plan to redeem his people will always be true. And in fact, we understand God's plan to redeem his people has culminated in his son, Jesus Christ. So hope is found for the sufferer when we recognize that God always keeps his promises. Hope is found for the sufferer when we recognize in the scripture that God always keeps his promises. Look at verses 18 through 22. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. So that people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven. The Lord looked at the earth. To hear the groans of the prisoners. To set free those who were doomed to die. That they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem his praise. When the people come together. And kingdoms to worship the Lord. 
So here's the psalmist in the midst of his suffering, recognizing that God's legacy is a legacy of remembering the sufferers. That God will be remembered as God who entered into the suffering of his people. That's what he's saying. God is no distant redeemer, far off in some far-flung galaxy. This is God who enters into suffering. Why is this so incredible? Because the psalmist is writing this before Christ. He's saying, you know what? There's people yet to be born that are going to recognize God enters into suffering for his people. Has that happened? Right. This is why this is the garden prayer, because Jesus entered into our suffering. And in, in, a, in, a, in a very clear way is the fulfillment of Psalm 102. He's saying, I'm not merely here to take away your suffering. I'm here to enter into it with you so that you can experience the joy that comes in being restored into relationship with God. But Jesus goes far beyond what this psalmist could have imagined. Jesus not only enters into our suffering, he conquers death. So he doesn't give us a temporary salve, a little bit of ibuprofen and a cold pack for our suffering. What he does is, I tell you what, I'm going to take all of your suffering on me. I'm going to know and experience every bit of suffering that humans can experience. Then I'm going to die as your substitute and raise from the death. So if you're in me by faith, there will be a time where suffering will no longer be a thing and you will live forever. So Jesus has complete victory over suffering. Complete victory over the difficulties we face in this life. He is no distant redeemer. Remember what the psalmist started, he said, God, don't turn your, don't hide your face from me. Did God hide his face from us? No, he came right down to us and became a man to walk among us as our savior. Look at Hebrews chapter one, verses eight through 12. There's, I don't think these are up on the screen that's how I roll. Sometimes you have to use your Bible. You came here. I didn't think I had to bring my Bible to church. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 through 12. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Of the Son, He, this is the Father, of the Son, God the Father says, of God the Son, this. This is uh, Psalm uh, 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, the author of Hebrews is saying, Psalm 45, we'll get to Psalm 102 in a minute, that God the Son, number one, is God. Number two, that he has been anointed with the oil of gladness, that he has loved righteousness and wickedness, that he is an eternal king. And then he goes on, verse 10, and so the Father... God the Father continues talking about the God the Son. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10, he now quotes from Psalm 102, the psalm we're reading this morning. He quotes from verse 23. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here's what's really helpful about the author of Hebrews for us in Psalm 102. The author of Hebrews is telling us, God the Father in Psalm 102 is talking to God the Son, the psalmist. So while this, this poet was writing his psalm, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this entire psalm 
is a psalm that was penned. The father is viewing this psalm as a poem of the son. That this is the Messiah in advance, looking at the suffering of humankind. And the father is now speaking to the son and saying of the son in the psalm, your foundations will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever. Hebrews assumes that the entire Psalm 102 is a, a psalm about Jesus. And it's about the suffering of Jesus. This isn't merely a poet penning the difficulties of life and saying, God, do not hide your face from me. Quick example. God, do not hide your face from me. Did Jesus ever say something like that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So someone, Psalm 102, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the Son, before he comes, voicing his suffering and recognizing the suffering isn't merely for suffering. It has an aim, a goal, a purpose. The joy of restoration. Whose restoration? His restoration into glory. Our restoration when we trust him. That's what Psalm 102 is doing. It's showing us the suffering of Jesus the son. If Jesus is suffering servant for us, it means the story isn't over yet. Let's quickly look at uh, the end of the psalm, verses 23 through 28. Let me read it again. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Who's, who's saying this? The son. Who's he talking about? The father. You say, listen. He's cut me off. What, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the cross. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout generations. Verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation. This is God responding to the son. Of old you laid the foundation. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away. You are the same, and your years have no end. Verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. The glory of Jesus is this. Even though he endures forever, because he always has been and he always will be, he endured suffering for us to participate in the glory of his restoration. Because what's going to happen to this world? He just told us. He's going to change the world like he changes a robe. How hard is it to change a robe? And he, that is not difficult. Okay? I can't even get the weeds to stop growing in my front yard. But Jesus changes the entire cosmos the way I change a t-shirt. That's how easy it is for him. Jesus never ends. So this uh, eternal God enters into suffering and, and it's not pretend suffering, it's real suffering where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, if this cup could pass from my hand, do it, but not my will, but yours be done. And Lord, don't hide your face from me. And I, I'm like skin and bones and my enemies are mocking and he enters into this suffering because it brings us the joy of restoration. Look at verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell what? Secure. There is the joy of restoration in our Savior. There is security for those who trust him. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the glory of Christ. 
that there is restoration after suffering. And those who are in the Son by faith know they are secure. We have a home that will never end. There is no suffering God ever wastes. The suffering and difficulty he brings into our life is a function of bringing out the glory of the, the restoration we will one day experience. A couple of things and, and then we'll be done. I want you to think about this. What is the difference in suffering between desire and hope? Let me try and explain what I'm saying. What do we desire when we're suffering? We desire for suffering to stop, right? And that's a good thing. There's something wrong if you desire suffering to continue. That's not, we're not celebrating suffering. Yay, I'm suffering. No, suffering is terrible. We desire for suffering to end. That's a good desire. Now, it can be a bit of idolatry if that's what we focus our entire world about is ending our personal suffering. Then it can become sort of a God. Everything will be fine for me if my suffering ends. Well, that's not how it works. But a good, healthy desire is, you know, something in my life is really difficult. And I would like it to not be difficult. That would be nice. So that's desire. What is hope? Hope is different in the Bible. Hope says, God gives me the power to endure. So desire says I want it to end. But where is my hope? That no matter what comes in Christ, I will have the power to endure it. Now, which one do we like better? I don't want the strength to endure suffering. I want to not have suffering. How about that? I don't need to have strength to suffer, Lord, if you just make my life awesome sauce. That would be great. And you and I have prayed this prayer a million times. Now, but hope is found... When our life in Christ is patterned after the life of Christ. Where I say, did Christ have the strength to endure suffering? Yes. How did he have the strength to endure suffering? Number one, he's God. Number two, though, what else? Power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, what else? We just read it. An angel came to help him out. So what we do, we get in the Garden of Gethsemane with our Savior. And we say, Lord... This is really terrible. And God says to an angel, and the angel says, I want to help you out. And we say, I don't want you to help me. I want you to end it. I don't want strength to get through it. I want it to stop. And what we need to do as believers is look at the life of our Savior. If we're going to live in our Savior, then we're going to see how our life is patterned after our Savior and our hope. How do we know everything's going to be okay? Because God will give us the strength to endure whatever he's going to bring us. I don't know what next week holds for you. I don't know what next year holds for you. There might be some really, really great times. I pray for that. There might also be some really, really tough times. Hope is saying, I know that no matter what comes next week, God will give me the strength to endure it. That's what he's going to give us. Second thing about our Lord, Jesus. There is nothing that God takes us through that Jesus didn't also endure completely. There's nothing that God will take us through in this life that Jesus hasn't already gone through completely to the end. The reason this is important, because one of the elements of Psalm 102 is the fact that this guy felt alone in a, in a, in a busy room. Because nobody in that room knew what it was like for him. Even if he tried to explain it, 
It's difficult to make that connection. So he felt isolated. But we have a Savior we're not isolated from because what is going on in our heart and lives, the difficulty we feel inside as well as in the, in the world around us, Jesus knows exactly what it's like. We are not isolated from him. He is not ignorant of the difficulties we face. He has experienced every element of living as a person in this fallen world. He has the ability to give us the strength to endure until our salvation is made sure in the glorious future. What is the source of our joy right now? It's a certainty. Verse 28 of Psalm 102. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. The joy we have today comes from the certainty that one day we will find ourselves in his perfect kingdom. And there will no longer be any suffering. When is that day coming? Does anybody know? Anybody have the date? Just wanted to see if you'd fall for it. Um, not soon enough for Seth. It was a kite, man. I mean, he said, come Lord Jesus. I lost my favorite kite. You know hey, each person suffers on their own, right? Each person on their own. That's right. Not soon enough. Not soon enough. When he comes, we're going to say, already? Already? No. Phooey. And when he comes and we step into his kingdom, we're going to say, no, Lord, this is too much. No, this is over the top. Really? No, this is crazy. But till that day, our joy comes from knowing that we're secure in him. He doesn't hide his face from us, not because we're good enough, but because he is. And he shed his blood for us. Garden prayer. There is sadness and suffering we all experience to one degree or the other. But there's joy and restoration because Jesus went through it for us. And we're secure in him when we trust him. He will take us home. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our Savior Jesus who entered into our suffering. He was willing for our restoration and to grant us life to endure the difficulties and brokenness of this world that we might, by faith, have the opportunity to have life in him forever. Lord, we confess that when we face the difficulties of this life, uh, we experience discouragement and weakness and doubt and fear. And sometimes, God, we allow the circumstances we face to change how we think about you. But Lord, as we look at your word, we recognize that the joy of restoration is at the end of a path of difficulty and suffering. God, would you give us hope in Christ? Would you give us hope in knowing that you give us strength to endure to the very end? You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You will not hide your face from us. You might not take away the suffering that we wish you would take away, but you will not abandon us and you will give us everything we need to be secure in you. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who don't know you, that they may see the great sacrifice of your son Jesus and recognize that he suffered for them. And they would trust Jesus for forgiveness. We pray this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.